It was a slow news day Tuesday, and when it's slow on Today in Ohio, we talk about Laura's renovation project. We'll be doing that today. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Courtney Astolfi, and Lisa Garvin on the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Before we get to Laura's house, we do have some news to talk about. Let's start. A Cleveland Municipal Court judge was kicked off the bench and, at least temporarily, out of the profession of law this week for many, many acts of outrageous behavior. Who is it? And Laura, what are her prospects now? This is Pinky Carr. She's stripped of her law license for committing a level of misconduct that the majority of Supreme Court justices called unprecedented. This is basically as bad as it gets without being disbarred, and it's a 5-2 vote. Now, you might remember Carr. She's a former assistant county prosecutor. She ascended to the judgeship in 2012, and she helped send serial killer Anthony Sowell to death row. So she's been a, a name in the news for quite a while. She can apply to have the court reinstate her li- law license after two years, but she first has to persuade them that she's sufficiently addressed these issues. And we're talking about more than 100 incidents occurring over two years and repeated acts of dishonesty. That's according to the court. A blatant and systematic disregard of due process. And it started at the pandemic when, remember, everybody went home, everything was canceled, basically. And she was sending out arrest summons for people who didn't show up for their court dates, even though the courthouse was closed. Yeah, I this is really one of those strange falls that that is almost inexplicable. She was about as highly regarded as you could be. I mean, she was the prosecutor on major cases and she ascended to the to the judgeship with a lot of renown and then her behavior has become kooky. She did say in her defense that she's having some mental health issues mm-hmm. that she's dealing with. And that almost would seem to be the right explanation, right? Because who behaves the way she was behaving? People were told, don't come to the courthouse. We're closed. You shouldn't come. And then when they didn't come, she was trying to have them arrested and then lying about it. Remember, she lied to Corey and And was caught lying and... Right. She went to a TV station and said that absolutely no way she didn't do that. And it's like, these are recorded. We have the proof. And that's what the Supreme Court justices referred to, that not only did she do this, she lied about it repeatedly. So now Attorney General Dave Yosoff says they've been appointed a special prosecutor to review whether there's enough evidence to charge Carr with a crime. But she has sought to explain her misconduct as this mood disorder brought on by mistreated sleep apnea and menopause. And she asked the court to suspend this um, for the two years, but with 18 months of it stayed, which would mean a six-month suspension. And the photo we had of of her on the bench, it's kind of like she's got like 12 cups around her, like different coffee cups and, um, you know, the ones with straws and everything. And it, it just looked – it it, it – shows some credence to the mental health disorder. Yeah, I mean when you're when you're doing the loony things she was doing, you really shouldn't be sitting as a judge because right. you're affecting lives. You're you're talking about taking away people's liberty and and things. So, you can't really 
have that kind of erratic behavior and be a judge. But if she is having mental health issues and she get them, can get them under control, you would hope that they would allow her back into the profession of law. There are lots yes. of people, as we know, who really experienced some mental health issues during the pandemic because it all it turned everybody's lives upside down. And you would hope the court system would have some compassion for somebody, just as you would hope that a judge like Pinky Carr would have some compassion for people that appeared before her having mental health issues. Right. I mean, some of these incidences make no sense and are just over the top. She once ordered a woman to spend 15 days in jail because the woman rolled her eyes and made disparaging remarks about her courtroom during a hearing. And they also found she was jailing people to compel them to pay fines to make more money for the court. I mean, these are really problematic offenses. Yeah. Like I said, you can't, she probably should never be a judge again. This is way too dangerous because it's affecting people's lives. And that, that level of power where I can lock you up, I can fine you hugely and, and really to, to do something because somebody rolled their eyes. I mean, Laura, you have almost teenage children. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine you've seen a few eye rolls yourself. I thought you were going to say you've seen eye rolls from me. And I was like, I don't think oh, I roll no, my eyes. Oh, no, no. I would <laughs> never say that. Anyway, it's not the end of the pinky car story, but but I she certainly did get slammed by the court. Interestingly, the one of the people running for chief justice wanted to be more lenient. Sharon Kennedy went against the majority and said we should have stuck with the original recommendation. Jennifer Bruner running against Kennedy for chief justice was with the majority saying this was an astounding number of failures as a judge and she needed to be punished more severely. It's today in Ohio. The Ohio School Board has willfully immersed itself in culture wars the past couple of years, adding to the politicization of the schools rather than taking steps to keep school discussions about education. Lisa, how many members of the school board will Ohio voters choose in November? And do we really have much choice? Well, we actually do have a choice, uh, taking a look at the candidates in each of the districts. So the way the Board of Education works, it, it, there are 11 elected members, and then eight of them are appointed by Governor DeWine or whoever's governor. Um, five seats are open this election. Um, one of them, District 3, is non-competitive. Um, Charlotte McGuire, who is the president of the State Board of Education, is unopposed in District 3. And uh, so, uh, there's also an open race. Um, um, yeah, I have a lot of notes here. District 2 is a completely open race. Huron, Lorraine, Ottawa, Wood, Lucas, Erie, and part of Hancock counties. And I tried to boil this down because there's a lot of information here. So we'll take a look at who's endorsed by Ohio Value Voters, which is a very, uh, very conservative uh organization, nonprofit that tends to support very conservative candidates. They have endorsed three people in this race. One is the incumbent in District 9, John Hagen, who is said to be very, very conservative. Also in the open seat, District 2, Sarah McGurvey got the Ohio Value Voters endorsement. And in District 10, there are three candidates there. And one of them, Sierra Lynch Shehorn, who is a new candidate, got that uh, 
uh, that endorsement as well. Also, three incumbents that are on the ballot right now voted to rescind the anti-racism resolution that the School Board of Education passed in the wake of the George Floyd murder and protests. Uh, those three who voted to rescind, John Hagan in District 9, Jenny Kilgore in District 4, and Tim Miller in District 10, who was a DeWine appointee a couple of years ago. So he was not elected to the seat. He was appointed. So I'll stop there and see where we can go. I guess my question is, as voters go to the polls, they have enough trouble once they get to judges because they don't know much about them. We do the endorsements for judges and there is information out there, but a lot of voters get to that section of the ballot and go, oops, I didn't study up for that. When you get to the school board candidates, I think it's even worse. They they have no idea. Mm-hmm. Is there a website that, that people can go to to quickly get the lowdown? Like these are the candidates that, that voted to rescind the, the racism issue. And these are the candidates that are trying to inject prayer into schools just, just so they know, because the people that favor prayer in schools may want to go that way. Or is it really you have to hunt and peck and search on your own? I haven't found any, but I wasn't looking very hard. Um, But yeah, I mean, when it comes down to school districts, I think that people just kind of pick one, you know, they say, oh, I'll pick a woman or I'll pick a man or I'll pick an Irish person or whatever. But um, yeah, I don't know that there's any information gathered in one place. Do you? Well, except for Laura Hancock's story that has right, good information. Right, which is it, so. an excellent story. And there was so much information. I was writing notes and notes and notes to talk about this. But I think, and I don't know if party affiliations are on the ballot. I, I don't think they are. And they don't really run as, in, as a party. But it's obvious who the Republicans are and who the Democrats are. So maybe, I don't know. I don't know, Laura. Maybe what we should do is on the morning of Election Day, send out a an alert and put something on our site that says, you've gone out to vote, read this before you pick your school board candidates, just so it's present in their minds. And it's a reminder like, oh yeah, I should do that. Because the story's out now, it's three weeks from now. I just don't think people are focused on it. But Mm -hmm. it's really important, as we've seen from all the nonsense this board has been involved in over the past two years. Yeah, and just to remind them why it's important to, you know, turn the page on their ballot and make sure they fill that out. All right. Well, put that on the to-do list. Put on the list. Okay, we'll do. (laughs) It's today in Ohio. Why is Justin Bibb trying to claw back millions of dollars? He committed to one form of lead abatement to put the money into a different lead program. Courtney, this is your story. Lay it on us. Yeah, this this all kind of emerged in a council committee hearing yesterday, and I will see it. I will say it. It seemed to be one of the more contentious committee hearings I've seen since I started covering City Hall. This was wild. So this proposal from the Bibb administration is looking to take back $5.5 million of $17 million that the city's already allocated to the Lead Safe Cleveland Coalition. That's that big group that's been convened for years trying to tackle the best way to address the deep contamination of lead in this city. Cleveland's got a huge problem with lead, and, and the coalition, through this years of research, kind of landed on the idea that because the problem's so pervasive and because it would cost just an ordinance amount of money to completely remove lead from all Cleveland homes, that you should focus on making properties lead safe. The easy way to think about that is you're, you're painting over peeling lead paint and sealing it up so that kids can't get exposed, get exposed to the flaking chips and things. 
But while the Let's Safe Coalition, which has raised a huge pot of money in this this big chunk that the city put forward with $17 million earlier this year, was a big addition to their already to the pot they'd already established. But at the same time, so the coalition does that lead safe work. The city is charged with doing deeper lead work, uh, more thoroughly abating homes of the hazard, not just doing that patch over, making it safe, sealing it off from kids. So the city wants to take back this $5.5 million set aside for the coalition and bring it back in-house to the city workers who, who more thoroughly remediate some houses of lead. And those are generally houses that are in crisis. Kids there have been found to have elevated levels in their blood. Um, they've failed field inspections, have state orders against them, things like this. So the city wants to take this money back and dedicate it to its in-house efforts to more deeply tackle the problem. But the issue here, as pointed out in this heated me- meeting yesterday, uh, particularly by Councilman Kerry McCormick, he said this would essentially be a huge change in approach. Folks have decided essentially to do the lead safe route because of how big the problem is and how far you can stretch the money, try and make as many homes as safe as possible. He's saying this idea to more thoroughly remediate and, and kick some of this money back to the city signifies a, a total change in strategy of this huge effort that's been ongoing. And and so this this effort's kind of put on pause. We have to see where it goes next week because of council's hesitations. But there was a big piece missing in the room yesterday. We did not hear from the coalition to see their thoughts on this. And, and that seems to be a key piece of the puzzle about whether council's going to move this forward. It is a tough debate because what Kerry McCormick wants to do is kick the can down the road. If you seal up the paint, you have an immediate respite from it. The kids are safe, but eventually what you do deteriorates and it exposes the lead again. It's not permanent. Only by doing the much more, much deeper dive and removing it forever cleans the house of lead. So so I get the debate because do you want to kick the can down the road and when it's multiple billions to clean it out or do you attack it by taking it out? The one thing that I, I do think is interesting is nobody's talking about adding significant dollars. The city got a huge amount of stimulus money. There's probably no more important issue facing Cleveland than getting lead paint out of the houses why didn't they just put a whole lot more of the money into it and clean it? And for that matter, why doesn't the county council, instead of building golf clubhouses, kick in some millions for lead paint removal so that it is permanent? It's a great debate. Uh, It sounds like it was kind of a surprise, which is not a good way to go, but I'm glad they're having the debate. But don't, don't they have a lot more stimulus dollars available in the city right now? Yeah, there's there's a lot that still needs to be allocated. We're already starting to see kind of a spending plan for some of that money, so it's not all completely dedicated. But but I do want to say um, what's surprising me here is, is the process. So a few weeks after Mayor Bibb took office, there was this big announcement in in the in the you know main main hall of City Hall to talk about just this important investment in Cleveland, the the city's. The city's $17 million dedication back then was used to leverage additional millions from the Cleveland Clinic. I wonder if they're going to have an issue that the city's now looking to pull out some of that money. Um, but but what strikes me here is that, so there was this announcement in January, and then it took, I think, until May, later in spring, 
for council to actually approve this. I want to know why this homework wasn't done on the front end. Like, why are we looking to pull back now? It seems like these kinds of conversations ought to be ironed out on the front end, not not going back and changing things. Although Bib was later. new, right? So he comes in, there's stimulus dollars on the table. He he gets updated by the Lead Safe Coalition. He finds out where the progress was and he says, okay, sure. But now it's 10 months later and he's become more knowledgeable about the thing. And he's saying, you know, I think we ought to be getting rid of it permanently. The, the thing that surprises me is instead of taking the money away that everybody's agreed on, why don't you put in more money? You have the money. Why don't you put in more money to do what you want to do instead of coming in and stripping some money away? Great stuff. You did a, a really fine job writing this story. Very clear. Well, um, shout out to our stimulus reporter, Lucas Dupriola. Yes, right. I'm sorry. Yes, Lucas. It's uh, good stuff. And, and I don't know. We'll see where the debate goes next. It's today in Ohio. What significant step is taking place today in the grand vision for unifying Northeast Ohio with dedicated bike lanes? Laura. So there's a groundbreaking for this first section of a project to extend the Euclid Creek Greenway from the southern portion of the Euclid Creek Reservation to the northern section on Lake Erie. That includes Euclid Beach, Villa Angela, and Wildwood Parks. And so these first two phases, and there are four, it's going to bring this an all-purpose trail. So you'll be able to bike on it or hike on it north to Chardon Road. It's about a quarter mile north of Euclid Avenue. That's going to happen by the summer of 2023, which Sounds pretty soon in the grand world of construction. It's going to cost about a million dollars and also include some reforestation and enhancements to the former site of Euclid Central Middle School, which the Metro Parks now owns. And then there's another one next Thursday. There's a ribbon cutting marking a completion of a mile-long eastern ledge trail. That's all within the Euclid Creek Reservation. And, and ultimately, this is all part of a plan to pretty much tie Cuyahoga County together with dedicated bike lanes removed from car traffic, right? Absolutely. And to enjoy the metro parks without having to get in your car and drive to the next one. Because this is one of the original metro parks that was mapped out at, uh, I believe, the beginning of last century. And the idea was, you know, it hugs the water. It hugs Euclid Creek, but there's so much stuff built around it. And so this way, you'll be able to get from one park to another. We call it the Emerald Necklace, right? Well, they're not all the beads on that necklace are not connected. And that's what this idea is that you'll be able to go from one to the other without having to get in your car. It's an unusual park in that it's a very narrow strip. You're right. Mm -hmm. It hugs the waterway. Mm -hmm. uh, and then at one end, there, there's some more land. But as the metro parks go, th this is less of one that has trails leading all over the place it's pretty once you're mm -hmm. once you're back mm -hmm. by the, yeah it's by like the a way. gorge there yeah. in south euclid you're you don't even realize because it's just behind houses and you know it's in between mm -hmm. some pretty busy roads but it is really cool and uh this is part of 815 mile network of off and on road trails that they want to get done which um, as we know, the the Metro Parks are asking for um, a 2.7 mil replacement levy this year in the election. And this is the kind of work that they do with that money. Good plug. Good <laughs> plug. And we do have a story coming about what they might not be able to do if that tax fails. They're gathering up the data for us, I understand. It's Today in Ohio. Reporter Sean McDonald takes a deep look 
at how the switch to fully electric vehicles could profoundly affect Ohio's economy, either as a boon or a detriment. Lisa, we're giving you all the complicated stories that require lots of notes today. What's the upshot? <laughs> well, actually, the upshot is is that it's a double-edged sword, but I think that the advantage goes to Ohio, according to the people that Sean talked to. So what would happen as we switch to electric vehicles manufacturing, which we're already doing here in Ohio, it will create thousands of new jobs, but it will eventually eliminate thousands of jobs that are tied to gas-powered vehicles. I did not know this fact that Ohio has 91,600 automotive jobs. That's the second largest in the U.S. About 68,000 of those jobs are making parts for vehicles, so not the vehicles themselves. So, but, but people have reason to be optimistic. The president of the Ohio Manufacturers Association, Ryan Augsburger, says we have several advantages here in Ohio. We have an existing workforce, although there will be some retraining necessary, proximity to existing plants, highways, rail access. It's a friendly business environment for infrastructure, taxes, fresh water access, and electricity access. So he said also too that the future may not necessarily be all electric vehicles. There are hydrogen vehicles that may come into prominence later. And he says that, quote, we want to be the vehicle state whatever those vehicles may be. And then Jonathan Bridges with Jobs Ohio says the pressure is on to bring these new jobs, which we are doing. Like I said, Ohio does have a competitive advantage, he believes. Um, we also we already have Ford, Honda, and GM pumping more money into Ohio facilities. And then we have overseas companies coming here, Foxconn and LG Chem. So the momentum seems to be in our favor. Yeah. I I mean, so far, the, the state seems like it's done really well. Jobs Ohio has provided all sorts of inducements to get this kind of thing. Ford and Honda have just recently announced these big investments. So it's interesting that there's there are people that are a little bit worried about it because it's a competition. Every state is trying to get these and the race isn't over till it's over. But so far, Ohio seems like it's outpacing other states and attracting that kind of investment. And I think it's interesting because we used to be a manufacturing giant in Ohio, and that kind of went away with the Rust Belt in the 80s. But it seems like, you know, manufacturing is coming back and people are pushing hard to to help it come back. Yeah, I, I, I think the, the optimist probably wins out here. I think Ohio's future looks pretty good, as long as it stays focused. I mean, Governor Mike DeWine and Jobs Ohio have done pretty good work so far in bringing the investment. It's today in Ohio. All right, Courtney, you did write this story. Why does Sherwin-Williams want to build its own hangar at Cleveland Hopkins International Airport? And should we take it as a great sign for the future that the request is not at Burke Lakefront Airport? <laughs> well, so let's start with your first question. You know, Sherwin-Williams, they're in the, mid of this, in the midst of this huge new headquarters project. They're, they've agreed now to stay in Cleveland for the foreseeable future. Construction's underway downtown and out in Brexville for an R&D facility. And now here's another piece of the puzzle of Sherwin-Williams doubling down on its hometown of Cleveland, or so they say. So uh, Sherwin-Williams is looking to build a 50,000-square-foot facility out at Hopkins to store and maintain their fleet of, of corporate jets. Currently, they're leasing space at a privately owned hangar out there, but they want their own facility. So they are looking, like I said, it would be 50,000 square foot building. We don't know how much they're going to spend on it. Fair enough, but they say they're not going to be seeking 
public subsidies to build it. Now, to make this happen, they need a lease from the city for for some land out on West Hanger Road near like the corporate aviation corner of the airport property. So they're looking to lease this nearly six acres for, for over 30 years. We don't know what they're going to be paying the city to be on this land, but they expect to start construction uh, midway through the year next year, and it should take about a year to build. So Sherwin-Williams will have a presence out there. You know, I don't I don't know quite what all the corporate presences are out at the airport, but I, I just thought it was interesting to know that there's like a lease with this this big name company downtown. It seems somewhat novel for this yeah. kind of presence to come to the airport. But given where their headquarters is, which is walking distance really from Burke, I think 10, 15 years ago, or while Frank Jackson was mayor, the talk would have been putting it at Burke because how convenient would that be for them? But the fact that they're not, and I get it, that they already have a presence out there, so this expands that. But I, I do think the writing might be on the wall. Justin Bibb has said he doesn't want to keep Burke an airport. He's got the task force looking at it. The fact that Sharon Williams is putting the investment in at Hopkins, I'm taking that as a good sign. You know, um, we, we did specifically ask Sherwin-Williams, why not Burke, given its proximity? And they didn't answer that question. They didn't so, but I, I think it's your assumptions here. It, it would be logical to arrive at that conclusion. Okay. It's today in Ohio. We have not talked about Laura's remodeling project in a while, and we keep being told people would like some subjects that are a little bit off the news. Laura, your latest piece, yet to be published, says you're designing your bedroom to have a very different feature. What are you thinking? So I've never had a TV in any bedroom in my whole life, other than like the four years when I'm at college when you live in one room, right? But we're putting a fireplace in our Sweet. And this is like the th- whole third floor of our house, right? So it's going to have a bedroom and a bathroom and a little like reading nook. And I thought, like, I would like to have a TV above the mantle just because my kids are getting older. You know, they're, I just, my son turned 12 last week and they're staying up later. I can't just like shove them off to bed at eight o'clock anymore and watch a show that I want to watch. And also, I don't want them watching some of the shows that I want to watch. So <laughs> I am, I mean, <laughs> okay, the dom- going there. Let TMI, you know, the TMI. Dahmer show that I wanted to check out. Like, I don't need my kids seeing that. Right. So, um, and I'm never putting a TV in my kids' room. That is not happening. So I thought I would like a TV in my room. Hmm. The the that, that's an interesting choice because I think there are people that would tell you that it's bad for sleeping patterns right. and it's right. unhealthy and people get into habits where they fall asleep with it on, but you don't seem to be that worried about that. I I, I definitely understand the research and I get the blue light and but I've never been one to fall asleep with the TV on. I don't intend to do that. I'm not somebody that puts on TV for background noise. Like I, It's more like appointment viewing. I have something I want to watch. I turn it on. I watch it. I turn it off. So I don't think it would impinge on my life. But I, I always figure like it's there if you want it. You can always like put a nice piece of art if you're like, nope, I just can't have it. Right? Like We could try <laughs> it. Yeah, because at the snap of the fingers, your kids are going to be in college, and then you can watch TV anywhere you want. In the whole <laughs> Wherever house. you want, right. <laughs> and that's the thing is like, so the Nielsen research shows that the average home has like 2.3 TVs per household. But that doesn't include the laptops, the cell phones, the tablets, right? And so there's actually, probably for the first time in a very long time, a decreasing trend because people are watching TV on their laptops or their tablets. And to me, taking a laptop to bed, that is that is pushing the envelope too much. I am not doing that. 
I'll be interested to see what kind of reaction you get when this story publishes later this week. I would like to put in another plug today. I am still collecting um, home improvement horror stories. If you have stories about something that went wrong in a do-it-yourself project or a contractor that totally flummoxed you, I would love to hear it. I'm at ljohnston at cleveland.com. Not that you would describe your experience as a horror story, (laughs) even though in some rooms you have no heat. It's today in Ohio. What is the Great Lakes experience at the arena where the Cavs play, and why is it significant in the world of beer? Lisa, the Great Lakes have had a big station at Progressive Field for quite some time now, and this raises questions about whether they're switching. Yeah, it's going to be, and they haven't really said what they're going to say. Um, So the Great Lakes Brewery opened Monday at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. It's a 1,500 square foot concession area on the south side near Portal 17. It replaces the saucy brew works that used to be there. So it's, it's, Interesting because, you know, Great Lakes is the oldest brewery in Ohio, the oldest Ohio-based brewery. They've been around for 35 years. Um, They're really excited about this location. They'll have nine beers on tap, including two exclusives, Milk Stout and Pumpkin Ale, that you can only get at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. And they're excited. They say this is going to be great for their marketing. There are about 200 events a year at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. They'll be able to sling their suds there and all of those events. They say they hope hope to keep the current beer garden in progressive field for 2023, but they haven't said anything definite about that. So the first time people can really experience this new brewery is at the Cavs home opener on October 23rd. Which we're now looking forward to because as we know, the Guardian (laughs) season came to a sad close pretty much in the first inning of the game with the Yankees last night. We should say great season by the the Guardians. The nobody expected them to go as far as they did. And the fact that they took the Yankees to game five is pretty astounding. I I think that we yeah, got to give it to the Guardians with all their rookies and their heart that they played with. But that was a disappointing end to what had been a very exciting series. Go Phillies. It's today in Ohio. That I don't know where the time went. We are not going to get to our complete list of stories today. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow.